Have you, have you ever thought about what makes a church a biblical church? I mean, like, actually thought about it. I, we've pondered this question in, in mission work sometimes when you say you're, 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 you know, you're planting churches overseas, and sometimes you'll have the question of, well, you have these, you have these uh, eight people meeting in a house, but they don't really have a pastor. Are they a church? I mean, we debate those kinds of stuff, you know, those of us that debate that things. And, but it's an important question because it goes to the heart and purpose of really the reason we're even sitting in this room today. Honestly, it really does. Some think church exists for social change, that it exists to transform society or simply just to help to make the world a better place. And, and I believe church does those things, but I actually think that's a byproduct of the church, not necessarily the purpose of the church. And I want us to answer that question, what makes us a church? I, I, I preached a version of this sermon several years ago, um, but I think it's important enough, and the timing is right in the life of our church, that it needs to be repeated. And there's, there's many things in the Christian life needed to be repeated often. And so I'm not really apologizing. I'm just telling you, if you took notes and you're like, Pastor, you already preached this sermon, I guarantee you that's only going to be one of y'all, and the rest of y'all going to be remember. I do not remember you preaching that at all. Because um, if you're like me, I can't tell you what I listened to yesterday. Um, and so what I want to talk about is what drives us, because we all need what I'll call spiritual maintenance. Um, we, it's things that we should promote and things that we should practice. It's our, it's our habits, our true north. It's the things that center us and guide us as a body of believers. And as I look at the history of, of uh, like my own history in church, as well as talk to other people I've counseled over the years, I think a lot of us have spent a lot of time in church, um, and we need some spiritual maintenance. We, we've been doing this church thing a long time, and a lot of times we take things for granted. We get on autopilot. It's just the way we do it. We forget why we do it. So I want, I want to talk about that today, because a local church is an organism. And while some of the details may change over time, there are certain things that should be non-negotiables if you're going to define yourself as a church. What makes a church a church? And, and there's things that shouldn't change, that, that should all churches, if they're going to carry that label as a Christian church, they should do these things. And so I want us to look at Scripture. You can go ahead and turn to Acts 2, but while you're turning there, I'll, um, I want to quote from Matthew 28, uh, 19 and 20, which most of you know is the Great Commission. Jesus is speaking to his disciples before his ascension into heaven, and he tells them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. If you grew up like me with the King James, he's also low with us. Uh, low, he's with us always. And as a kid, I thought, was he not high? I mean, you know, what, what are we doing here with this low thing? Um, this passage, known as the Great Commission, and some will say this is our marching orders for evangelism. But this directive is about way more than evangelism. It is our marching orders, yes, but these marching orders are disciple-making, not simply evangelism. I think evangelism is the start of disciple-making, but making disciples includes many things, but it's not optional. Making disciples is not optional, and it isn't just for church leaders. All Christians have this calling to be replicating yourself as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, to reproduce yourself into others and make disciples of them. Jesus did this with the 12. And 
And so as Christians have passed this baton on from generation to generation, it, it becomes the function of the church to make disciples, which starts with sharing the gospel, but that's just the beginning. It's not even close to where disciple-making ends. And one of the last places, I'm sorry, one of the best places to see this carried out is actually in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. It says, and they devoted themselves. Who's the they? These are the believers that have become Christians coming out of Pentecost. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling all their possessions and belongings, distributing the process to all as any had need. And this is not socialism, FYI, don't go there in your head. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now look, this is not a complicated text. The first thing, that happens as we look at this is to understand the very beginning of this passage, they devoted themselves. A church is full of people that are devoted to these things that we're going to discuss here. As we look at this, I mean, uh, the, these new believers devoted themselves, and in this devotion, it allowed the birth of the universal church, but even the local church. Without this devotion, there was no church. Let's be honest. Think, think, uh, think about this one particular thing when it comes to um, uh, church life, and that's giving. Why do you give to this church? Because you're devoted. That's really the only, you're devoted to Christ. You're devoted to the mission of what's happening here. Outside of that, you don't get any financial return from that. You get eternal reward for it, but you have to first believe that you're going to get eternal reward for that to even be part of it. But this devotion is necessary, and what it means to be devotion, it means to be loyal. It means someone who gives their time and their thoughts and their energy and their money to a cause that they believe is greater than themselves. They give their heart to whatever it is they're devoted to. But we need to understand the weight, the seriousness of this level of devotion that's being talked about in this passage. This devotion describes a single-minded commitment to the cause. It, 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 it is a tenacious reach towards the, the, the task, the cause, the devotion that's happening. It's an intense effort. I think about, it makes me think about... Um, uh, Kurt Warner. Y'all, do y'all know who Kurt Warner is? They, they came out with a movie about his life just like a couple of years ago. It was actually a really good movie if you hadn't seen it. I don't remember the name of the movie. but um, So Kurt Warner was an NFL, somebody remember the name of it? American Underdog. Great movie. I recommend it. And I don't recommend movies very often. Uh, this is good. So um, Kurt Warner was a eh, college quarterback who, because of injuries, got um, uh, the starting job as his senior year. And he had a pretty decent senior year, but he, some of the coaches didn't like some of his attitude and some of those kinds of things. So he, he, he went into the NFL draft, but he did not get drafted. One team brought him up, tried him out, and it didn't work out. 
So Kurt's still trying to play football. He's still training, doing all these things, but he needs a job because now he's got a family and, and there's some kids involved. You have to see the movie to understand it. And, um, and so what he does is he goes and he starts, uh, he gets a job at a grocery store and he starts um, stacking uh, shelves. But the dude's got an incredible arm. He can throw the ball. He's got some attitude problems, but he can throw the ball. But he's stacking shelves. He's still training. After years of still training, we're talking about five, six years of working in this grocery store, still training, trying to play football. A, they, he gets called up to the Canadian Football League, goes to a team where they're practicing in a, literally in a dirt field. That's there with hay, hay bales to, to, for their perimeters. Does great in this Canadian League of Football. And out of desperation, the St. Louis Rams call him and say, hey, look, come over here. We want to give you a tryout. We've been watching you in this Canadian football thing. Come over and get a tryout. So he finally gets a signed with the St. Louis Rams at 28 years old. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but that's old for a, for a quarterback to be starting in the NFL. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's like starting a new job, a new career at 65. I mean, it's old. His first year takes him to the Super Bowl and wins the Super Bowl. Goes back to the Super Bowl two more times. He's listed as MVP of the league, retires. It's one of those just great, incredible stories. And when they ask Kurt Warner how, after all those years, all those tries, all of that, no, how in the world do you feel like you made it? He said, I just never quit. I just never gave up. He, I was devoted to becoming an NFL quarterback. I never gave up. Now, I got to be honest with you guys, I would have given up. I would have. 28, it's like, they're never calling me. I need to go do something else. He never gave up. That was how devoted he was to that dream. Whether it would have panned out for him or not, it did. And it and, and makes a great story. But that's the picture that's painted by Luke here in Acts. These, 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 it's the same thing when Paul was talking in Romans 12 when he wrote, Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's true worship. It's the same concept that's being pushed here. And it's not just that they were devoted. It was a continual devotion. It's, it's implied in the text. They devoted themselves now, and they continued to devote themselves into the future. And I say that because this isn't a story about a group of people having this incredible salvation experience on the day of Pentecost, and then they're baptized, they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and now they've, got, they've developed this, like, super, they're super Christians, so they just run around, I got this, it's all good, it's so easy. This, is, this Christian life is so easy because I got, I got better Holy Spirit than the rest of y'all got. It is not that. They continued to devote themselves. It wasn't a single one-time event. And we understand this. If, if you have a long-term goal, like we're going to save X amount of money for a trip or I'm going to lose X amount of weight, you don't make a decision one day, I'm never going to eat carbs again. And then psh, that pan of hot rolls with butter coming out of the oven, ah, I, don't, I don't need that. Bring it here, I'll smell it, it's no big deal. No, you wake up every morning. <laughs> And decide, I'm not, Aaron, I'm not going to drink that soda today, right? 
I'm, I'm not going to be tempted by that fifth plate of dressing and gravy and on Thanksgiving, right? No, it, you have to continue that, you know, you're saving money. You have to decide, I'm not going to spend this. I'm not going to do this because I'm working towards that. You make sacrifices, and you have to do that daily, constantly making choices to reach that goal, which lets us know, look, in the face of these ups and downs that happen, this wasn't a matter of experiencing a high at Pentecost and keeping them motivated all the way to heaven. They, they weren't super Christians. It was a continual, ongoing devotion that happened over and over and over again in their life because they were devoted to the cause. They saw the end. Now, what did they devote themselves to? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the book of Acts is a unique book. You could say it's a book that promotes the apostles' teaching because that's what the apostles were doing in most of the book. It's pretty much one story of another of the apostles preaching the gospel in different, to different groups of people. Um, headed somewhere to preach the gospel and seeing people saved. But unlike the people in the book of Acts, we don't have apostles with us today. I know there's people out there that claim they're apostles. They're wrong. There are no modern-day apostles. If you hear somebody say, I'm an apostle, just turn the TV off, all right? So if we're going to discover how to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, we need to know what it is. Now, when we say we're devoted to the apostles' teaching, it means we're devoted to biblical doctrine, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those matter. If you think about this, what Bible did Jesus have? He had the Old Testament. And I know there's groups out there saying right now we need to, you know, we need to kind of unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and just focus on the New Testament. No, we're devoted to both Old Testament and New Testament. Ephesians 2.20 says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the foundation of the apostles is the New Testament. The foundation of the prophets is the Old Testament. So the church is built on that foundation. Just as Jesus instructed the apostles to teach and pass along doctrine from again and again, generation to generation, if we call ourselves a church, we need to be devoted to biblical doctrine, doctrinal teaching, teaching what the Bible says, learning what the Bible says, not what we want it to say or what we wish it would say. We need to be devoted to what it says, regardless of what culture is saying around us. It, it, it has to be the center of us. What shapes us? What molds us? This teaching, as it is, not what we really wish it were. And if we disagree with Scripture on something, we need to make the assumption that we're wrong, not that the Bible's wrong. You can't have true Christian love, which is really the core of what we're supposed to be as believers, if you don't have true Christian doctrine. And it's, it's crazy to me that when I hear people talk about doctrine being like dry, or, you know, the early church, you know, they understood doctrine is the foundation of everything, and this is the, the living and acting Word of God that never passes away. And if I'm teaching doctrine, and it's dry and boring, it's not the Bible's fault, it's my fault for being a bad teacher, and so, uh, that's a little too, amen, too hard there, Scott, all right? 
I'm just messing with you. Right? Not right? <laughs> I, I think about, I grew up, I grew up under, a, uh, uh, there was, a, there was a, uh, an element of anti-intellectualism in the culture when I grew up. And um, it runs in certain circles in Christianity. It's a shame because I remember growing up hearing pastors like preach against going to seminary for pastors because they would be like, um, oh, no, no. Uh, they'd call it the cemetery. Because they, this is their, their thought. Oh, if you, if, you, if you go to seminary, you're going to replace your spiritual life with education. Like, oh, all of a sudden now the education is more important than the spirit. This whole, it was like this very warped view of things. And there are those who say experience in the Christian life is more important than studying doctrine. And I can tell you that's, that's not true. But we, I mean, I'm not, I'm not dismissing experience. Experience is important. But if your experience is not filtered through the truth of the Word of God, your experience is going to lie to you at times. And, and, and these new converts in Acts that happen right here, they have just witnessed one of the most amazing experiences in all of the Bible. The Holy Spirit comes down in a miraculous way, and they hear the gospel taught to them in their language by people who didn't even initially speak their language five minutes ago, and they become believers, and it's, and it's so chaotic that people in the room are like, What's wrong? are these people drunk? What is going on here? I don't mean chaotic. That's probably not the best word. Just there's a lot happening. And they had seen the apostles work miracles of healing and other things in their life. But it does not say that they devoted themselves to miracles. It doesn't say that they devoted themselves to seeking the next big spiritual experience. Can we get another Pentecost? It says they devoted themselves to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was being taught to them by the apostles, which is doctrine. J.P. Moreland says, Christians who starve their minds are starving their soul. And I believe that's true. And that's, that this belief has been the foundation of this church since day one, the priority of biblical preaching and teaching. And to never ask the question, what does the passage mean to me? To always say, what does the passage mean? And if people are brought to a saving faith in Christ and to mature spirituality, we must be a church that teaches a complete biblical message that's rooted in the Word, focused on Christ, and full of doctrinal instruction. And so I I love the statement in the Baptist faith, the message on the Bible. It says, the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, All Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and to the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of the divine revelation. They learned doctrine. They were devoted to it. But it wasn't just about learning. They were devoted to living out what they learned. This is what what we see in in 
uh, verses 43 through 47. Doctrine matters, but it's not the only thing that matters because if you don't have love and you have doctrine, all you have is dead religion. You have faith without works, and that's dead. Doctrine without practice is dead religion, which means as we learn to live holy, we live holy. As we learn to serve others, we serve others. As we learn to better share the gospel with our friends and neighbors, we share the gospel with our friends and neighbors. We learn sound doctrine so that we can show the love of Christ to each other, and in showing love to each other, we show Christ to the world. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and is necessary, it's, it's profitable. It's necessary that we learn it. It's inspired by God. We need to learn it correctly. We need to be devoted to it. But what does it say it's profitable for? It's profitable for teaching. It's also profitable for rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. It's not just about the learning. So that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's why we learn so that we can do and do in truth. Now, the other thing they devoted themselves to, let's look at it. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, words evolve over time, and sometimes they, you know, we can clarify, sometimes they lose their meaning. Unfortunately, fellowship is a word I think has lost its meaning. In fact, honestly, let's just be honest. If I said to you, what's fellowship? Some of y'all are going to say, oh, that's like potlucks, right? All right? And I, look, don't get me wrong. I like a good potluck. We need to have one. It's been a while. Um, but I think it misses, if that's our view of fellowship, that's un- unbelievably shallow. There's a, there's a uh, the concept of koinonia is in this translation of the word fellowship. Fellowship is so much more than hanging out and socializing. That barely touches the surface of the meaning of fellowship that's happening here in Acts 2. It's actually not even what we refer to as community. Because you can switch communities. You, you can. You could be a Charger fan right up to the point where Spanos lied to the city and took them to L.A. for whatever reason he decided to do that, and then all of a sudden, like, I'm done with the Chargers, I'll be a Rams fan now, right? That's, that's what happened to me, by the way. And um, I don't even know if I can call myself a fan of any, any NFL team anymore, but, but you can switch communities. Community is about individuals coming together, but, but fellowship is a stronger language than simply community. There's a, there's a corporate nature, there's a spiritual nature to Christian fellowship. From a biblical perspective, Christian fellowship happens because we're connected by the Holy Spirit of God in a sense, in the same way that the Trinity, in a sense, I don't, don't, over, I don't want to overstate this, in a sense, the way the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are connected, there's a spiritual nature of what's happening. And believers have fellowship with one another on the basis of their common fellowship with God and their participation in the blessings of the gospel and the common task of mission. And we rally around those things. And because we are spiritual and dwell by the Holy Spirit, there's a unity, a unification of purpose happening towards the kingdom of God that only happens because we work because of the work of the Spirit of God is binding us together. That's what, honestly, that's what holds churches together. When you see churches fall apart, it's probably because they lost this. But fellowship, I think, is best seen in action. 
When, when Christianity really started to take off in, in first century Rome, the Roman leaders sent spies into these gatherings, these house churches, because they wanted to know what was going on. This, this is blowing up. This is becoming too large, too fast. It's having too big of an impact on what's happening here in Rome. Y'all go figure this out. And the spies came back and they said, look, these Christians are weird. They don't worship idols. They worship one God. Can you believe that? They just worship one God. They, they, they worship one God named Jesus, who's not even represented in their worship services. There's no idols hanging on the walls. And on top of that, these people love each other. Now, this is what I'm saying. This is recorded history of, of, of Roman history. It said they are bonded together in an extremely unique way. They have koinonia. And Jesus told the disciples, the world will know you by your love for one another. And Brent read it this morning. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. And as you, as you turn there, uh, we're, we're going to look at verse 12. So it, the, verse 12 says, put on then. Now this put on literally means put on clothes. It's the same exact concept, which means you reach down and you take your shirt and you put it on your body. It says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. Do you all see what this says about believers? This is the very beginning of, of verse 12. It says, we're God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now think about that language. That's the same language that's spoken of about Christ. And when we practice this in community, we manifest the character of God. And how do we manifest the character of God? According to this passage, we manifest the character of God to each other. The purpose of this is for us to manifest the character of God in our community through fellowship. And we do that in several ways. But the main one is through relationships, which means look around. These are your people. And when you choose a church family, whether you knew it or not, officially or unofficially, you are covenanting with a local body. And in that local body, you seek to build relationships that allow you to live out the Spirit of Christ living in you, and by doing so, have true spiritual fellowship, and that brings unity, and it shows love, and it shows a message of Christ to the world, which requires a, very couple, a couple of very practical things. One, verse 2 tells us, it requires bearing with one another, which requires in us Mature, humble, spirit of grace. And here's what I mean by that. Take two 
junior high boys, 11, 12-year-old boys. One's a huge Star Wars fan, and the other one is a huge Star Trek fan. And put them in a room and say, you know what, I think, I think Captain Kirk could take Luke Skywalker in a fight and then just walk away. You know what you did? You literally poured gasoline on a fire. You know why? These dudes, these young guys, they're going to argue, they're going to shout. You, you were, you just, you're not even in the room. You just started something, right? You can tell the way my brain works too, by the way, right? And uh, I mean, it's going to get heated. Depending on the personalities, there might even be a few punches. And they are going to go at it. You know why? Because they're immature. They're immature. Because everything's important. Everything's up here to a kid. I'm a Star Wars fan, and if you're not a Star Wars fan, then I don't even know what to, I don't even want, I don't want anything to do with you. Right? I could have gone DC or Marvel, but DC's so bad, I didn't even want to do that to them. So, all right. Um. <laughs> you want to go at it? Right. All right. Now, let's do this. Let's elevate the conversation. Let's elevate it to theology. Let's elevate it to church philosophy. Let's elevate it to issues that matter, issues that actually are important in life, issues that sometimes have eternal significance. We are going to have theological disagreements. We're going to. That's been happening since day one of the church. And as I've aged, I've realized, and I have been the person I'm about to describe, and probably still am at at bad times in my life. But the arrogance it takes to divide, or even worse, put somebody in the category of an unbeliever over a secondary theological issue, reveals two things. It reveals incredible spiritual immaturity. And it also reveals... Let me put it this way. It reveals that this person has not matured to the point of realizing that at some point we are all wrong and that we are all in need of patience and grace and others bearing with one another while we work through some things. And look, people need correction from error. I don't have any problem doing that. But that's very different than division and dismissal and basically saying, no, you're, I don't even think you're a believer. Right now in the current political climate, among Christians, there are some saying that if you vote a certain way, you must not be Christian, right? And when I said that, some of y'all thought I was talking about voting Democrat, and some of y'all thought I was talking about voting for Donald Trump. And the fact that y'all weren't all thinking the same thing proves my point. Look, I have friends I disagree with theologically on some things that I consider very important. I'll give you an an example. I use this example all the time. I have a couple of Presbyterian friends that that I I love these brothers. And they have been with me and helped me in some, some, some areas in my own life where I needed help. But those guys practice infant baptism. And I have to be honest with you, I think the whole concept of infant baptism is dangerous to young people, as dangerous as easy believism, because I think they both have the same fallout, a 
a false sense of security in something that may or may not have happened that's not tied to repentance and regeneration. It's tied to the event of baptism. And so as they struggle later in life, they look back on that and go, but no, no, I was baptized as a baby, so surely I'm saved. These men are my friends. I still think they're Christians. We're going to be in heaven together. I've got some things I'll stand with them on. But I really, really disagree with them on this point. I'll show my cards since I'm kind of in the middle of a rant anyway. I, I believe, and, I, and I, I want you to hear my heart on this, right? Because I know there's some discussion, not really here in this church, but it's outside. I believe the Bible is very clear that the role of pastor for whatever reason God chose, the Scripture teaches that the role of pastor, and therefore the title of pastor, is set aside for men, for males. I also believe that women can and should serve in leadership roles in churches, just not in the role of pastor, pastor, elder, overseer, however you want to word that. And this is a discussion that pops up every now and then in SBC life, about 20 years or so, and it's, it's, it's happening right now for some reasons. I'm not going to get into all those reasons. I think it's a significant enough difference in theology and philosophy that it makes it difficult to work together in certain areas of kingdom work. But I have pastors who are good friends. I was with one two weeks ago, and I, I left that guy, and I was like, dude, come on, man. Don't, don't, don't go here. We disagree. Now, we're going to be in heaven together, and we're going to both get to find out who was right. I mean, I'm going to get to find out I was right, but um, I've got some things I'm wrong about. I just don't know what they are. If you ask me if I think everything I believe is right, the answer is yes, and I mean that strongly. But I'm also mature enough to say i probably got some things I'm wrong about. I just don't know what they are. Now, here's the thing. I'm not going to this guy's church, and I'm not going to recommend anyone else does, and I'm not going to invite them to speak here, but I do think we're Christians. I just think he's wrong. But because as God's chosen one, holy and dearly loved, who has put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, I want to bear with that guy who's my friend and as best I can, point out to him what I think's error. And he may never change, but it's not going to change my friendship with him. Now, there are some things that I think are worth dividing over. There are. And there's things we're going to disagree on. It might be theology. It might be politics. It might be Ford versus Chevy, right? It's Ford, by the way. And um, it, it, it might be something that... that could get heated, like how to raise kids. It could be something like Christian freedom in relation to like the use of alcohol or watching movies. I, I've known people in my life, the fact that I recommended a movie I, after the church, I'd have to have a 10-minute conversation on about recommending movies to people. It can be a host of things that have real meaning and real implications. But we are still supposed to put on love because that's the character of Christ And that's what produces fellowship and elevates Christ to the culture who is so quick to divide. 
and tribe up. And so true lasting fellowship that goes past just being around the dinner table and carries over to the hospital bed and even the graveside when necessary. They gave themselves to fellowship, which means they weren't just hanging out with all the people they shared the same hobby with. There was an intentional push to build community centered around Christ in a culture where there were clear, strong cultural divisions related to race and wealth and status and gender in ways that I don't even know if in the land of the free and the home of the brave, we can really understand just how strong those divisions were. And for Paul to say there's neither slave nor free, nor Jew nor Greek, nor male nor female, was one of the boldest statements he could have ever made. And look, I do believe there's issues worth dividing over. Absolutely, I do. Things related to the gospel. And I mean actual gospel issues. Things that damage the, the true message of the gospel. Those are worth dividing over. But I think that's something we should be slow to do. And I think it should be a last resort after it's become clear that they have indeed rejected the gospel. Not something to be taken lightly or do quickly. And definitely not something to brag about to everybody on social media. Look what I did. I believe it should grieve us because fellowship is broken. And when we're in that, we're not just breaking apart a relationship. There's a spiritual nature to what's happening here. They devoted themselves to fellowship. And that's seen in several things. It's seen in encouragement. It's seen in encouragement when the people of God surround the one going through trials and tribulations. We bear one another's burdens. It's seen in provision and shared resources when somebody's going through a tough time. And it's the reason we have like a benevolence fund here at our church that primarily ministers to members who need that. It, it, there's fellowship and sharing, and it, it, there's a partnership nature to this, and, and it, it requires gathering. It does. It requires gathering. But gathering alone isn't fellowship. The church in Acts gathered because of Jesus, and he was in the center of everything they did in their gathering, and in this fellowship, they gathered because they shared the same Jesus. They, they, they shared the same guide for life. They shared the same love for God. They shared the same desire to worship God. They shared in similar struggles. They shared in similar victories. They shared in their job of living for Christ. And they shared in the joy of communicating the gospel. And they rallied around that in a unique love that where Colossians 3 says, above all of these... Put on love because that's what binds us together in harmony. It's what makes us a church. At least that's where we start. We're going to look at, we're going to look at the other two next week. But Do our actions show that we're devoted to living, learning, and living the doctrines of the apostles? Do we practice sharing life together in spiritual fellowship, practicing it in all of its aspects, not just the parts we're comfortable with. That's the beginning of calling themselves a church. But I want to encourage you to consider how are you personally practicing these two things? Are you devoted to the teaching of the Scripture in, in the ways that it means? Is that a regular part of your life? Not simply reading it, but absorbing it, applying it, integrating it, demonstrating it. Talk about that in a few weeks. Are you practicing fellowship? 
Are you intentionally seeking to build relationships centered around the love of Christ within the body? Now, I know that's easier for some than others, but just if you're one of those people, I joke all the time, I'm not really looking for new friends, right? And that doesn't mean because I don't necessarily like people. It just means my Lego base is real small, and to put somebody on, I had to pull somebody off. And I know, know y'all don't really get that analogy, but it's a thing. So I have to work at it. I have to work at it. Not natural for me. Look, I, there, was, there, was a, there was a couple of people around here. They are actual friends with everybody. I can go to them and say, hey, tell me what's going on with this person, and they'll give me a list this long of everybody in the church. And not in a gossipy way, in like a genuine way. Right? Because they, they have that ability. I don't have that ability. I have to work at it. Some of y'all going to have to work at it. We just are. We were talking in a, a class this morning Things like like daily Bible reading. I have to work at that. I don't hop up bright and early, grab my Bible and run to the table and just start reading. Yes, I get to read my Bible today. I hear those guys talk about that. I hope they're telling me the truth. I don't know. No, I open my Bible and I start reading and I get distracted. And if it's too early in the morning, I sometimes fall back asleep. And then give me about 20 minutes and I'll finally wake up enough to go actually pay attention to what I'm reading. And then, you know, as I keep going, it gets a little easier and I start paying a little more attention and then something will pop out. Oh, that's good. I'm going to take a note on that. Write that down. That's helpful. You know what I mean? That's how my morning usually goes. That's a good morning too, by the way. That's a good one. I got the ones where I like 30 minutes in, I'm like, man, I don't know. I just don't have it today. I'll have to try this this afternoon. I'm just being honest. I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm more spiritual than the rest of y'all. I'm not. I know I've, I'm, I've been told I'm supposed to be, but sorry. That's information for you. I'm just trying like the rest of y'all. Training. Not trying. Training. i got to work on that. I'm training like the rest of y'all. Just training to be like Jesus. I say all that because if we're, if we're going to be a church... Right? And we are a church. I'm not, if we're going to be a church, we are a church. We got to focus on these things. We got to remember these things. We got we to work on these things. Even the hard things of, of devoting ourselves to the cause of Christ, which looks like for today the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship.